Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Does corruption hold back our society? That's one of the questions we'd like to discuss with today's guest on Future Hindsight, Paul Lagunas. He is a Columbia University political scientist whose scholarship focuses on corruption, especially as it affects subnational governments in the Americas. His current book project is Corruption and Oversight, Insights from Field Experiments. Thank you for joining us. Mila, thank you for having me here. Let's start with a general overview. Many of us think of corruption as paying off a police officer to get out of a speeding ticket, but there are many other ways. How do you define corruption? Corruption is a contested term. Perhaps the most standard, widely accepted definition, both in the the world of practice and also the, the, the world of academia, is corruption is understood as the abuse of public office for private gain. I'll say it again, abuse of public office for private gain. Why is it a definition that we can debate? Well, first, notice that it's uh, focusing on public sector, so the abuse of public office. And yet, it's not fair to say that fraud or misbehaving only happens in government, in the public sector. So this definition is restrictive, it's narrow. It's only focusing on the public sector. So we could contest that. Transparency International is the, the global watchdog one of the most known organizations out there fighting corruption. They take a broader definition, and theirs is the abuse of public power for private gain. And so that just encompasses the private sector as well. How does corruption work in practice? Corruption can be present wherever there's regulation, wherever we want a society to act in one way, and there's an incentive for them to act in another way for their own sake. So I'll give you some examples from my field research in Mexico City, actually. I found corruption in places like the public cemetery. Slots in the, in the cemetery were sold for in perpetuity. But what the families of those relatives who passed away didn't realize is that years later, that same public cemetery would unearth the bodies and would resell those slots. What I'm trying to say with that particular example is that corruption happens anywhere in government. Theoretically, we might say that corruption is most likely where the officials see in their cost-benefit analysis, see that the benefits of partaking in corruption are greater than the, than the risks of doing so. So if you're an elected official, you might face the risk of not getting re-elected if the electorate finds out that you're corrupt and they don't like the fact that you're corrupt. If you're an unelected official, then you might get fired if the mayor, the president, whoever's your boss doesn't like that you're being corrupt. Both sorts of officials, elected and unelected, face a third type of risk, and that's the risk of prosecution, of landing in jail because of corruption. So at the heart of it, these individuals are considering what will they gain from abusing their power uh, and what are the risks from being detected in, uh, in their abuse of the power? From what you just said, does it mean then that corruption is more prevalent at a lower level than at a higher level? Not necessarily. I've studied the issue of corruption in New York, Peru, Mexico, somewhat in Brazil. And I've seen some government organizations where everything's dictated from above. So the cabinet-level minister, cabinet-level official of that city, 
had quite a bit of control over the agency. And so there was perhaps some corruption at the lowest level, but it was unlikely that they would really go very far on their own without direct orders from above. And then there were other instances where you might have a very honest individual at the top, very professional, somebody with long-term vision of where they want to go with their career. And then the people below are, it's just hard to keep them under control. It might be hard to keep a police officer under control. They're a classic example. They're out on the street and it's hard to keep an eye on what they're doing. They have a lot of discretion. At the end of the day, that's the key thing here. Before there's a cost-benefit analysis, we need to go even a step back before that and think about the ability that they have to make a decision to do good or to abuse. So there's variation, sometimes at the top, sometimes at the bottom, sometimes a mix. Okay. You mentioned just now about an agency where somebody really has a lot of control and there's basically a systematic approach to corruption. How does that work? Because I think that's a foreign concept for most Americans, but it's common in many other countries. One of the greatest contributions to our understanding of corruption is thinking of corruption as a contingent behavior. That means that corruption may be rational. Oftentimes it is in certain contexts. In other contexts, it certainly is not. So why the difference? Is the difference cultural? Is the difference in somebody's DNA? Well, it's not. <laughs> Let me preview that. It's not about culture. It's not about DNA. It comes down to what are the rules of the game in a particular setting, in a particular context. So the same individual in a country that is struggling with corruption, like my home country of Mexico, will behave very differently in the state of Guerrero versus when they travel to Denmark. Now, Denmark is generally known to be quite honest. The government's quite clean. It's very uncommon to, to find police officers take bribes, for example. But go to that state in Mexico, the state of Guerrero. Corruption's much more prevalent there. So the same individual with the same level of education, same upbringing, same DNA, same cultural background, etc. When you put that same individual in one or the other context, he'll behave differently. Because he knows that to get ahead in a place like that Mexican city, it'll be hard for him to get ahead if he doesn't bribe in order to get that government contract. Whereas you take that same individual, move him to Denmark, and that same individual, when trying to get a government contract, if he tries to bribe somebody, he'll land in jail. So it's not rational for him to try to do that there. Th this is a world of multiple equilibrium, where in different contexts, it may make sense or not to partake in corruption. But at the end of the day, it may be rational in the short term for individuals to partake in corruption in certain contexts, but it's still suboptimal. It's not really what we want for that society because it involves costs for that society at large. How is it not good for society at large? Let's start off with the idea that regulation can be good, that the presence of government can be good. We need to raise taxes to pay for certain things like the police officer to keep us safe or the firemen and firewomen, schools, roads, defense, a government agency like a finance department in this city, for example, might hire a tax assessor that goes out and assesses properties in New York City to decide how much they need to be taxed. That tax assessor can approach a property owner 
and suggest, well, if you can bribe me, if you pay me a certain amount, which is much less than you'd pay in taxes, I'll lower your assessment. And in exchange, you get much lower uh, tax assessment. You pay less in taxes. It's a win-win. That form of corruption is known as collusive corruption. That's where these two individuals, the taxpayer and the tax assessor, come into an agreement. And neither of them has an incentive to blow the whistle. It's quite problematic for that reason. So they get, they get into this agreement, this corrupt agreement. Who loses here? We do, the taxpayers. Because the city still needs to raise those taxes. So to any law-abiding citizen, they will raise that other law-abiding citizen's taxes to make up for it. So this is just one example of how corruption for society as a whole is problematic. You wrote Saving Gotham, Fighting Corruption in New York City's Property Tax System. And in your study, you estimate that about a billion dollars were lost over three decades in tax revenues. Tell me a little bit more about your study and what you discovered. So that study is a significant case of corruption for New York City. We're talking about a three-decade-long corruption scheme involving tax assessors, a tax consultant, and taxpayers that were coming into a collusive agreement where, at the end of the day, the taxpayers lost out. That estimate of the billion dollars lost to corruption is an estimate, and it's one that I borrowed. It's one that the investigative authorities actually uh, shared with the press. But the point is, a lot was lost. What happened at the end? People were indicted. Did anybody go to jail? Because one of the things that you also write about is how we can deter corruption through transparency and through appropriate punishment. So in this case, were they appropriately punished? So let's start with that last point, because I think it's crucial. Uh, transparency is deemed essential for fighting corruption, but it's not sufficient. So if we reveal the corruption, but then don't punish, we can become cynical. If we reveal corruption and not punish it, then those who participate in corruption feel empowered, but also seem empowered. So optics here do matter. This is actually a case where I would say there was general success. So about 40% of tax assessors in Manhattan, and I'm going by memory here, and I should note this was around 2002, so it's been a few years were actually indicted. And a lot of them did go to jail. A lot of them did have to pay and are probably still paying to this day to make up for the lost money. That's the tax assessors. The question then becomes, well, what about the property owners who benefit from this tax scheme? Unfortunately, prosecutors were not able to gather evidence against property owners. And that's because they hired this tax consultant who did all the, all the dirty work. And property owners could thus argue that they didn't know. Also, that tax consultant was indicted. He was hit with a huge fine where he had to return several million dollars, I think. And he passed away during the trial. At the end of the day, in fighting corruption, what we want is the transparency to know where officials are abusing their power and then the ability to bring costs on those officials precisely for abusing their power. Now, that's key. Yes, it is. What is the relationship between democracy and corruption? It's a complex relationship. We'd love to think, we'd love to say, that democracy necessarily leads to less corruption, but it might not. So here's what we know about it. We know that on average, democracies tend to have lower levels of corruption than non-democracies. And this is based on perceptions 
data of corruption. It's not the best sort of data, but it's what we've got. So based on that data, non-democracies tend to be more corrupt than democracies. Okay. But we also see that uh, new democracies tend to have a lot of corruption. And so why is that? Well, elections are expensive and societies where the state is not particularly strong, where the state doesn't regulate elections in the best way possible, you have a lot of politicians trying to just get a lot of funds to win office and maybe also to, to take some home. So in the short term, you find that new democracies tend to be even more corrupt. And the empiric suggests that long established democracies, that's, that's the sweet spot. That's when democracy really kicks in and, and delivers on its promise of lower corruption. Now let's talk about why in principle democracy should, or we would think it could lead to lower levels of corruption. And that's because of representation. So the idea is that democracy connects you and me to the elected official. It makes the elected official our agent and we are his principles. So he must report to us, he must satisfy us for him to keep his job or for him to get a better job. Somebody who is hoping to gain higher office has to prove himself to us, the electorate. We have the power. That's why we would hope democracy reduces corruption because it keeps politicians in check and responsive to us. But that breaks down when the incumbent can reelect himself indefinitely and therefore has too much of an incumbency advantage we also need to think about what the electorate needs to demand responsiveness. The, the electorate needs to be informed. It needs to listen to podcasts. It needs to read newspapers. It needs to be aware of what's going on. They need to discern between fake news, real news. They need to care about things like corruption. They need to not like things like corruption. They need to want to move society in a different direction and keep that government honest. Then they need to solve this thing called the collective action problem. So it's not enough for me to care, do my homework and figure out whether this politician is more or less corrupt than that politician. We need to all do that together. We can't expect the anti-corruption advocates to do all the work because on the election day, we all have the same amount of power and we're supposed to shout to government and say, hey, listen to us. And unless we're willing to do the homework as citizens, that's not going to happen. They're not going to listen. They're not going to do what's right. Yes, indeed. Collective action. I've discussed it before in other podcasts. And it seems to elude us as the American people to actually show up at the polls and make our voices heard. What can everyday people do about corruption? What are the tools available to limit corruption's harmful effects? Being informed, properly informed, and making your voices heard. Now, how do you make your voice heard? And the number one way is voting on election day. The other way is enjoying or taking advantage of public forums to confront our politicians. Now, it gets tricky in that it's not just politicians who decide whether government will be more or less corrupt. It's also the non-elected officials. And actually, that's my strong area. That's where most of my research is focused on. And it's particularly tricky because you and I get to vote on the mayor, the mayor then selects cabinet level officials. Those cabinet level officials maybe select their own team. So at this level, maybe you can still draw that line between the unelected officials to the elected official to us. But that line becomes thinner 
as you go deeper into the public administration. How do we then make the unelected officials accountable? Well, one way is to force the elected official to keep unelected officials accountable. There are some strategies out there that I think are promising. One of the ways is encouraging cities, states, countries to really publish a lot of data about the workings of government. And countries like Peru are doing precisely that. Peru created this wonderful platform called Infobras that allows everyone, particularly the Peruvians, but anyone around the world to know what's being built, where, by whom, at what cost, when it's supposed to be concluded by, and it adds pictures of the infrastructure project, etc. It's telling us what's happening in the public administration. But my concern is that citizens are busy and they don't necessarily know how to evaluate whether this public infrastructure is good or, or that one's bad. How do we keep those unelected officials that are responsible for such important things like the development of public infrastructure accountable? Well, one straightforward way is to expect the officials responsible, like the controllers, office, like the inspector general's office, to keep oversight or monitor these activities. But then there we find another concern. That's that these monitors can't monitor everything. So what do we do? I'm suggesting that we rely a lot on NGOs, non-governmental organizations or civil society organizations. These organizations do have the time, do have the expertise to keep an eye on government. Moreover, they're independent. And just briefly, in Peru, I found that when the authorities, when the sanctioning authority, and particularly the Comptroller General's office, supported the monitoring work of an NGO, that saved the Peruvian state $7 million, only after investing $130,000 in work. That's a great returns on investment. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Tell us about your work in Peru. So the question I, I start off with was, how can we make transparency work to lower corruption? So I built this collaboration with Peru's National Anti-Corruption Agency. I then also involved Transparency International's national chapter in Peru. That national chapter is known as Proetica, a stellar NGO fighting the good fight down there. What the anti-corruption agency did was it helped me figure out what public works would be part of my project sample. And then Proetica was really the one doing most of the monitoring. And so these public works were being executed by district governments across the country. And the mayors were then getting these letters from the NGO saying, hey, we're watching you. And for each letter that the NGO sent, the anti-corruption agency followed up and say, hey, we know you're being watched by the NGO and uh, better keep things straight. That's important because the NGO really did the brunt work of the monitoring, but it had the backing, it had the support. I'd like to frame this as the watchful eye and the cracking whip. So the NGO was the watchful eye, but it needed a cracking whip. Shame is not enough. So it needed the support of the authorities that can do what? These authorities can fire people. They can also initiate prosecutions that lead to jail time. At the end of the day, what we found is that Thanks to Proetica's monitoring, supported by the Contraloría, there was a reduction of corruption by around 18%. So being monitored versus not being monitored led to a reduction of corruption by 18%. And where did the corruption take place? Because I think you had like a control group that wasn't monitored, and you had a group that was monitored. And so where was the difference? Yeah, thanks for raising that 
that differentiation between control group and the treatment group, because that's key. These districts were split randomly into a control versus treatment. And so that makes the districts in the treatment group comparable, statistically speaking, to those in the control group. We're talking about two versions of the same world. And the only difference is that one, the treatment group, receives the letter from the NGO, receives the monitoring. What is it that kicked in? I'd like to note that when I say that corruption was reduced by 18%, I'm actually being somewhat imprecise. It's corruption and inefficiency. It's both. And I can't disentangle them in this study. So it's possible that officials simply shaped up and did their work just more carefully. Both officials and the firms that were hired to develop these public works projects, when not monitored, had an ample opportunity to pocket the money. They would basically inflate the cost of the material used and then pocket the difference from the real cost versus what they said it was costing. They could also affect the quality of the infrastructure. They promise us six inches of cement and really they deliver only three and we can't tell the difference from outside. So there are many ways that corruption could seep into this activity. I can't tell you exactly what happened in each instance. But I can't see any other explanation here for why that reduction in cost between control versus treatment than the monitoring. That's really amazing to have basically a watch group have this kind of effect. That's very encouraging. It's very encouraging. What makes you passionate about this work? Well, um, I love my country. I love Mexico. I also love this country. I love the United States. I want to keep both of these countries on the right path. I'm interested in fighting corruption because I care to see a country like Mexico, a country like this one, really have a fair society, have a properly functioning economy, have a properly regulated environment where corruption, maybe even of a legal sort, makes regulation ineffective and therefore leads us to, to have polluted waters or have the air polluted. So fighting corruption for me is not an end of itself. It's, it's an effort toward improving society at large. What makes you most hopeful in combating corruption today? During a previous trip to Brazil, to the city of Curitiba, in the state of Paraná, and I got this extraordinary opportunity to interview Judge Sergio Moro and Prosecutor Daltan Delagno. And they're the face of an extraordinary team of people who, on a day-to-day basis, are confronting corruption directly. I study corruption. They're confronting corruption directly. And they have done really a wonderful job in a country that historically has been weighed down by corruption. So what gives me hope is seeing people like them and hearing their explanation for why they did it. They do it because they care about their country. And that's really at the heart of it, because they care about their country. That's what gives me hope. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mila. Corruption is the abuse of public office for private gain. When public officials break their responsibility to the public, our society becomes less fair and held back. It turns out that corruption is a contingent behavior, which means that corruption may be rational in some contexts and not in others. Though it may be rational in the short term to pay someone off in order to win a government contract, there are long-run costs for society at large. The rule of law, the common citizen, and the taxpayer are the most common losers in corrupt systems. 
Fighting corruption is an effort to create a more just society. The watchful eye and the cracking whip, or transparency and punishment, are powerful tools to hold elected and unelected public officials accountable. Most importantly, we need to be properly informed and demand responsiveness as well as corruption-free governments. And finally, we need to solve the collective action problem and vote on election day. It's the best way for us to compel the government to do the right thing. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Mark Hetfield. He's the president and CEO of HIAS, the oldest refugee organization in existence. He transformed it from an organization focused on Jewish immigrants to a global agency assisting refugees of all faiths and ethnicities. When you look at the history of the United States, this is not the first time that there have been anti-refugee sentiments. These sentiments have existed throughout our history. And our history is always a struggle between the tendency to keep America the way it is or the way it was, and to have America welcome refugees and be a more dynamic country. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Feda. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.